Do you want to go deeper in your faith even while you're on the go? No matter how busy the season you're in, Access More has a library of faith-based podcasts to help you grow spiritually. With podcasts from Christian thought leaders such as Christine Kane, Lisa Harper, Taryn Wells, and Bob Goff, you can hear podcasts on religion, culture, family, entertainment, and so much more. Access More gives you a safe space to find inspiring conversations about faith. Start listening today at accessmore.com. There is this umbrella over love as well that they all come under. And it would be to realize that love is not a two-way street. You know, we're, we're taught that, right? Oh, it's a two-way street. You go to marriage counseling before you get married, you know, you love to be loved, whatever people say. That's not what it's about. God doesn't love us so that we love him. That's a transaction. That's a, I'm doing this for you. You do something for me. That's, that's not how love works. So whether it's a partner, a child, a, a coworker, whoever it happens to be, you love, period. You love, period, no matter what, no matter what the person does. You don't have to hang with them. You don't have to like everybody, but love them. And love then creates this incredible freedom when you realize it's all you have to do. You don't have to fix people. It's not our job to fix people. Isn't that nice? That is beautiful. And we can't anyway. We don't control anybody but ourselves. Thank you for stopping by my podcast, Finding God in Our Pain. Welcome. Hi, I'm your host, Sherry Pilkington. In this podcast, you'll hear firsthand stories of how the God of the Holy Bible meets real people in their real pain. We look at the good God we profess through the lens of pain and suffering. I'm processing the most painful season of my life after unexpectedly losing Larry, my husband of 32 years. In my journey, I've discovered that there are many types of deaths. Maybe you've asked God, how could you let this happen? Why me? Where are you, God? Do you even care? What am I supposed to do with my life now? Here at Finding God in Our Pain, we don't shy away from the tough questions. I ask them to my guests. I share what I've experienced. We give real examples of how God shows up in the darkest, most painful situations in life. May the stories that you hear and the advice you receive encourage you to engage the heart of God about your painful places or memories or experiences or even your unmet expectations. Lean in close to God's heart because he speaks beautiful things in the dark. If you're familiar with 1 Corinthians 13, you know these chapters are referred to as the love verses. They describe the importance, the depth, the beauty of God's love for us. And since he first loved us, he also expects us to love others in this way that he has modeled for us. And I'm not sure about you, but I really, and I mean really, struggle to love like God loves that agape love, which I I know agape love is, he's the only one capable of that level of love, but he calls us into this excellent love. So I want, I know I want to love like God loves, and I I know I want someone to love me the way it's described in chapter 13. I want love that's patient and kind, one that does not keep a record of wrongs and one that covers over a multitude of sins. Wait, that might be yoga pants, but I think you know what I'm getting at. Love always protects and trusts and hopes. In 1 Corinthians 13, we'll focus on verses 4 through 12. 
verses four through seven describe the way God loves us. Verse eight gives us this transition into verses nine through 12, which tell us what it will be like when we leave this life behind and step into eternity. For Christians, this means that we will step into God's presence. Everything about this life is but a mere shadow, a small taste. And these verses compare this life, the nine through 12 portion, compare this life to being a child with regards to the way that we think and reason versus the way we think and reason as an adult. You didn't think the same as you did at 20 that you thought and felt at age 13 and not even 16. So 13 to 16 was completely different. 16 to 20, completely different. So my point being, thinking like a child is completely different than thinking, thinking like an adult. And the same is true when it comes to what we perceive about this life now versus when we stand in God's presence. So face to face with God will give us a depth of understanding that is unmatched by anything we had previously understood. In eternity, we what we thought we knew here and what we find out to be true there will be mind-blowing to say the least. So let's look at verses 4 through 12 of 1 Corinthians 13, because I think it's a great chance to meditate on what God is saying here. So take some time to look at the whole chapter if you get a chance, because I think I always enjoy reading a full chapter uh, to get the full gist of what's being said. Chapter four, we're starting at chapter four. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It's not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And here's verse eight that sets us up for the transition from what love is to leaving this world behind in exchange for face to face with God in eternity. So here's chapter eight. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. Chapter nine, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. And then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall fully know, even as I am fully known. Let the beauty of God's instruction saturate your heart. What would life be like if every person took to heart God's instruction on love? First thought, hurt people would no longer hurt people. Um, A couple of other thoughts, we, we could hold others accountable for the purpose of love. And what I mean is whenever you enter into a relationship, whether it's business, uh, professional, could be customer to client, I mean, customer to business owner, client to sales rep. It, it could be an intimate relationship. Everyone has a responsibility in that equation. You don't show up with no responsibility. Nobody gets by with slouching through the, the relationship or through the responsibility. And so, and we're human, right? So we're going to fail in some way, shape or form. And when that happens, 
we are able to hold them accountable for the purpose of love to return to that compass of God's unfailing love. And then one other thing I can think of, we could speak the truth in love and not be afraid, sort of that iron sharpening iron situation. So we would not be offended when someone came to us and spoke, well, maybe we would be offended, but we would return our compass back to this uh foundational piece of love. And there's that's where we would, when we do the iron sharpening iron, we return the other person, point them back to that compass that God gives us. Love would, would reign in every heart. So think about what that means for families alone. Love is what we'd emulate and we'd spread. Gosh, why can't love be as contagious as hate? Check out all that Kim had to share and may she bless your heart like she did mine. Welcome, Kim. And thank you so much for being on the show today. When I was looking to see what material we can cover for your episode, I was highly impressed by the fact that you got a book endorsement by Jack Canfield, the co-author of the Chicken Soup series. That's pretty impressive. So I want to offer my congratulations on your newest book titled Love Is. It was your year-long experience of living out 1 Corinthians 13 love. So welcome, Kim. Thank you, Sherry. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for the congratulations. I'm actually in Jack's bathroom. What? Did you just say bathroom? I was in a, a, a group <laughs> meeting with him. You could ask him a question. And I'm like, I can't let this pass me by because I had sent him my book before okay. it was published to get an endorsement and whatever. Yes. And so I got on the, the Zoom screen and he said, before you start, I just want to tell you, I loved your book. I loved your book and it's so good. Everyone should have it. It's just a great book. And I read it so often. It's actually in my bathroom. What? And I'm like, it's in your bathroom. <laughs> and he said, yep, he keeps a few books in his bathroom. And that's one of them that he keeps because he loves to reread the stories. And that's funny, amazing. That? Not everybody can a... say they're in Jack Canfield's bathroom, but no, they cannot. I can. It's a select few, apparently. <laughs> so very good. Very good. So again, congratulations. That's just, that's just awesome. I think Jack Canfield, if I'm not mistaken, back in the day, I, it's been years ago now, I wanted to go to a writer's conference, brand new to writing, couldn't afford it. And it was Jerry Jenkins writing um, conference. So I applied for a scholarship and he paid my scholarship for that. So that was pretty awesome. That that's my little connection to Jack Canfield. <laughs> yeah, he's a pretty incredible guy. Yeah, I appreciate him a lot. <laughs> Again, I'm just so excited to have you here. So before I begin to dig into this year long journey, would you bring the listeners up to speed with regard to what this book is about and what your journey was focused on? Why a year long experiment about love when you have gone through some staggering difficulty and loss? Yeah, well, uh, I I was diagnosed with breast cancer a few years ago. And four months later, my husband was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and passed away six weeks later. And it was an interesting time of life, a real soul searching time of life, having to figure out a whole new life and questioning things. And one of the things I questioned, the big thing I questioned was, what is love really? You know, John says that God is love. So that says not that God does love, that God loves, but God is love. So apparently love is something you can be, but what does that mean? What does it mean? And so I decided I was going to find out. And so I dedicated a year to 
go in search of the true meaning of love. So I decided to take the love chapter, love is patient, love is kind, does not envy, does not boast, et cetera. And I would take one word a month and focus on that word until I found the answer. And it took me the entire month, every month. And by the way, there's 14 is's and isn'ts of love in that chapter. And so it took me a little longer than a year, but I got it done. And I found what I was looking for. Like there, there are so many things about love that I've never heard before. Mm. And I, I think would be valuable to anybody. Can you share one of them with us before we get into the, I'm hoping that you share them as we go, but I don't want to spoil everything. Can you share one of the <laughs> discoveries that you had? Well, sure. I'll just start with the very first one. Love is patient. So all month long, I'm love is patient. Love is patient. I have it on my mind. And I'm, I was in Haiti uh, the majority of the time that I was working on it. So I'm in Haiti looking for love is patient and thinking I know, because we all know what patience is, right? You're on your way out the door and your son can't find his shoes. You're not getting all upset. You're just remaining patient. You're showing love, you know, whatever. But love that is patient is so different than that. Love that is patient, I believe you're supposed to love everybody. So whoever you're with, loving the person enough with love that is patient would say that this moment is the most important moment of your life. What's in the past is in the past. What's in the future is yet to come. This is the most important moment. And this moment is going to come and go with or without you. And I'll tell you, I did not show love that is patient. I had to learn. I had to practice because I thought I was a great multitasker and I could be in conversation while thinking about a meeting I had later that day, what I needed to get from the grocery store on the way home, what I was going to cook for dinner, and hear everything that had to be said at the same time. And that's just not true. That's not true. When I was doing that, I was making assumptions about what was going to be said, might have my rebuttal ready for whatever was going to be said. And now that I live love that is patient, and I'm fully engaged in the moment, I hear in a whole different way because I hear what somebody actually has to say. Not thinking about my answer, not thinking about anything else, but giving who I'm with, the person I love, my full undivided attention right here. When I hear you say that though, my heart kind of tightens up a little bit because I'm thinking, how do you prepare for the rest of the day? Like how do you show up in these other areas and you're fully ready, even though you haven't been making a pre-run at it prior to that. It's coming from my personality and the way I do things as if I, what I, when I was thinking that I'm like, well, yeah, that's pretty normal. Like you're planning out the rest of the day, you know what you got going, it's running through your head, you're prepping, you're ready. You're, but it seems like if you're going to be engaged with somebody hundred percent and you're locked into that conversation, you're reading body language, things like that, you're intimately connected with what's going on. How are you prepared for the rest of the day? Is it that you get prepared prior to the day how do you show up at the next task and you're well, ready you, you know what you were on your way to right or you know what what the day is going to bring what yeah. you need to accomplish what you know if you're at the grocery store and run into a friend whatever it is and so you know what you're going to be doing and you just got to get it out of your head wow. because you're not doing it right then you'll be doing True. it in a couple minutes and, you know, it can be difficult sometimes a little bit if you do run into somebody or 
you say the question that everybody asks, but nobody really wants the answer to, how are you? And we just want to hear fine and walk away, right? True. Somebody wants to answer the question. Quite often, people need to talk to somebody, need someone to talk to. And so how do you manage that with love that is patient? And I would say that you say, I am so sorry. I have five minutes to get across town. And I would love, though, to talk to you. So let me, can I call you later? How can we connect? And then, then show that love. Or it's funny, you know, I've got five kids, 11 grandkids, and I remember cooking at the stove and having one of my kids just tug at me, tug at me, tug at me, trying to get my attention. And, uh, and I'm like, I, this is going to burn, you know, what am I supposed to do? But I wish that I know, knew then what I know now, because I know that had I stopped, instead of saying, I'll be with you in a minute, or, you know, I'm cooking dinner, you know, go watch TV. I'm, I'm busy here or whatever. If I would have just stopped, turned and gave my attention to my three-year-old son, he would have said, he probably would have said, look, mom, this truck is yellow and then ran away. Right. I mean, they, sometimes people just need you just for a few seconds. That's true. Right. That's true. You're right. So that's a good point. You're still managing your time and your tasks and your attention. Because I think the example you gave when you say, look, I got five more minutes. I want to connect with you. How can I connect with you? Can I call you? Maybe text you later. And I think they would accept that like, oh, okay, yeah, sure. Here's my number or whatever. Call me tomorrow. But when you followed through, I think that would be the love that, that, that then engages or that patient love. So that, thank you for making that distinction because that stands out to me with regard to that way of applying patient love and also loving well to the people around you and the circumstances. So thank you. I'm most interested in this topic because I find it extremely challenging to genuinely live out what kind of love that that's described in first Corinthians. I have many roles in my life, just like you. I'm a mom, I'm a sister. I was a daughter. I'm an aunt. I'm a grandmother now. So all of these roles absolutely challenged me to deliver the type of love that first Corinthians 13 talks about. And I'll be honest with you. I have not always delivered in a godly fashion and on a consistent basis. So I guess my question is, is it possible to genuinely and authentically live out love that's patient and kind that never boasts or is proud and it, it doesn't dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. Is that possible? What have you learned? Yes. A hundred percent. It's absolutely possible. I had to do some brain rewiring because I thought things were one way and found out they were another. And so I had to really embrace the concept and fortunately had time to really work on it because I did the first month, love is patient, going into love is kind, but I was practicing love is patient while doing, looking for love is kind. And, and so they carried on to the next and the next and the next. And so all 14 are very different from each other. They all have incredible amount of wisdom in each one and, and what it is and how to live that way. But there is this umbrella over love as well that they all come under. And it would be to realize that love is not a two-way street. 
we're taught that, right? Oh, it's a two-way street. You go to marriage counseling before you get married. You know, you love to be loved, whatever people say. That's not what it's about. God doesn't love us so that we love him. That's a transaction. That's a, I'm doing this for you. You do something for me. That's, that's not how love works. So whether it's a partner, a child, a, a coworker, whoever it happens to be, you love, period. You love, period, no matter what, no matter what the person does. You don't have to hang with them. You don't have to like everybody, but love them. And love then creates this incredible freedom when you realize it's all you have to do. You don't have to fix people. It's not our job to fix people. Isn't that nice? That is beautiful. And we can't anyway. We don't control anybody but ourselves. I mean, you have this baby and, and for the first few months, you decide when it eats, you decide when the baby's going to be changed, you decide when it's going to be put to bed. Then the baby starts crawling and, and is in the Tupperware and then taking all the pans out of the cupboard and banging them. And you realize you have lost all control and you never get it back again. So we control no one. We control no one but ourselves. So the freedom in love is realizing that we're all unique. We're all created in God's image. We're all unique human beings. And we should live and let live whoever you believe you're created to be. Let people live who they're created to be. What do you think the number one fear is that we need to get over in order to love like that, to not feel, I don't know, threatened that if we love, people are going to forget what they did. But there has to be a fear as to why we don't love like that naturally why we have to focus, we have to rewire our patterns of thinking, our beliefs, let God challenge some of our false beliefs, things like that. So what would you think is the biggest fear? Or maybe you've seen it. Well, I think, I think there's a couple of things. Fear is one of them. But I also think we were probably born knowing how to love right, knowing, knowing how to love right. Like, I'm sure I was born knowing to know to put the fork down when I was full. And not just eat the cookie because it smells so good coming out of the oven, right? So I think love is that way too. We're probably born knowing the right way, but then we're taught things and hear things and are told things that that bring us to where we are today of what we believe about love. So I think a lot of the fear is afraid of giving love and not getting anything back. You remember high school, junior high, you had a crush on a boy, whatever. And, and, and then you were so nervous about, does he like you too? And can you even let him know? It'd be embarrassing if you like him and he doesn't like you. So I think that's a lot of the fear is what if you put yourself out there and you get nothing in return? You get rejected or you get abandoned, Hurt. however you want to define that. So yeah, rejection, I guess, is a pretty big fear. I know I don't like being rejected. Yeah, I don't think anybody does probably. <laughs> no, so so maybe challenging some of those beliefs that we have, that this lens that we've created based on our experiences. And so now we're looking through this lens at people and at life, and it isn't necessarily the truth, but it's yet our circumstance or what we've become accustomed to. So that's pretty important. How would someone know that they're not loving well? When I think about the changes that I've made in my life, I 
come up against a situation where I'm like, wow, that's not working. Like I thought it was going to work, or I didn't get the reception that I thought I would, what happened? And so now I want to reevaluate what went wrong, but how can someone know that they're not loving well, or that there's more to experience when it comes to the freedom of love? Well, I think it it all begins with uh, understanding, understanding love and understanding the fact that love is kind says that love has no expectations. So you give with zero expectations of getting anything in return. And it's, it's so easy to, to say, oh my gosh, they were sick. I brought them a casserole. Where's my casserole when I'm sick, you know, or why didn't they send a thank you note? But when you love, so, so when you feel like you've presented something, you've given something, you've taken your time and it flops, it fails, it, whatever it does, you did your part. You did your part. The rest is up to somebody else. And again, you don't control that, but you did your part. You learned stuff along the way for sure, but you do what you know how to do. And it's with zero expectation of getting anything in return. You love just to love you because love loves period. Yeah. I'm just thinking, where is the, where is the hinge of that, that we step into that fully not holding anything back or is that possible? We're very human too. So I'm thinking that you've made this great discovery because you set aside focused time with God and you begin to really look for these things. Maybe it's just a matter of somebody setting aside time and looking for these things to discover the newness of what they really mean. I think that's a lot of it. I I think knowing, understanding is, is a lot of it. And when you do, I think you want to live it. And shoot, I'm human. I'm not perfect by any means, but... I do live a different life. I I do look at things a lot differently than I used to, you know, like, like labels, for instance, it's so easy to put labels on people, right? But Mm -hmm. we're all these beautiful, wonderful people made in the image of God, all individual and unique and, and whatever, but it was, it'd be so easy to use a label and go, gosh, you know, I love everybody. I love everybody, but those darn Democrats, I love everybody, but those Republicans, right? Then you're not really loving everybody, but you're not loving them because of a label, not because of who they are. Yeah. You know, take the labels away, take the labels away. So when you take away the labels and you just kind of get down to the bare bones of life and you recognize, realize that we're all walking on the same ground. We're all at the same level walking on the same ground but none of us have walked in each other's shoes. So every day that you've lived leads you to today. So the way you react to things, what you believe, all of you right now leads you to where you are today. And so we have to love in a way that is also gives grace. People are in different spots in life. We're not all in the same connection spiritually. We're not all connected the same way in our jobs. We don't all do the same things. We're not all the same age. You know, we haven't shared the same wisdom and people are in different spots, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Of course, people are going to be in different spots, but then love would show grace in that and not say, oh my gosh, I can't believe they don't know that. Or I can't believe they think that way because 
holy cow, I learned years ago that you don't think that way. Well, no, love wouldn't do that. Love loves them for where they are, who they are. And so doesn't judge where they're at in life, but loves people where they're at. There's a lot of power in that as well, because it frees you up of so many things. But how do you balance? I don't know if balance is the right word. How do you love well like that with no offense and still have opinions and thoughts that are not necessarily agreeable to other people? Right. I mean, between Christians, not everything's perfectly agreed upon, right? True. So there's vaxxers that are Christians. And there's anti-vaxxers that are Christians. There's the Democrats, Republicans, again, with the labels, right? Mm. And people can have different opinions and you can share your opinion. But I think sometimes you got to think about why are you sharing your opinion? What is it going to do? Because going back to, we don't change people, right? Mm. So you know that that friend of yours that thinks that all Republicans are going to hell or whatever they think, and you're a Republican, you, maybe you don't talk politics. Maybe you listen to why they believe the way they believe, because if you're in the moment and you're really listening, you're going to hear things that you haven't heard before. And you might get down to the why and then understand them better. Understand your friend. Why do they believe that way? You know, what do they know? What has led them to this belief? And yes, of course you can share your opinions, but in a conversation, not a confrontation. Mm. So if you know something's going to lead to a confrontation, I don't know that you have to go there. But you can, I guess. But I don't know that you need to. It's probably not going to do any good. It's probably just going to put a division in the relationship because that person's not going to change their mind. But instead, if you can just have a conversation and listen and then think about it and go, wow, that's interesting that they believe that way. Because of course you can have an opinion. Of course you can share it. You are who you are. There's wisdom. It sounds like there's wisdom in, in discerning how much to discuss or what to discuss based on that particular um, person or personality. Because if you are investing in them, I can see where there's value in listening to them, discovering things about them. It's easy to really have a friendship with mutually respectful people, but they're easy to love. It's the ones that God calls you to love that are not lovable, but I have been unlovable in many instances. So I'm thankful for that. Well, you know, I, I was going to say something else about that too. Sure. So there are events that happen to us in life, whatever they happen to be, some tragic, horrible, very difficult events, other things like uh, running into somebody at the grocery store. I mean, you know, life is full of events, small and large, whatever they are, good and bad. And I believe that it is how you react to the event that brings the outcome of the event. So you have the event, there can be two people in the same traffic jam. And one person's going, oh my gosh, I hate this. I hate being in a traffic jam. I got to get home. I got to, how can I get out of this? Why is this going on? And be angry and really upset by it. Go to the next car and the next person, and they can be, well, there's really nothing I can do about it. So I'm going to sit. I've been wanting to listen to this tape anyway, you know, and there's nothing I can do. And be calm and deal with the event in a whole different way. So our reactions to things, 
if you react based on love, what would love do? You're going to react in a different way, or maybe you already react that way, but you're going to react in the right way. So it sounds like a mindset, or maybe even for Christians, a heart condition of how we perceive our surroundings or our circumstances puts more of the responsibility on you responsibility in the sense, not for what people say to you or do to you or whatever, but responsibility in your healing or your mindset or your heart condition. You can change those things. You can receive a, a deeper understanding, a deeper meaning. And so that puts some power, some control. We love control, right? <laughs> well, and I love how you put that. I mean, it's so true. It is a, a heart condition, a, a mindset, a, whatever it is. It's, it is definitely thinking a different way, living a different way. Uh, and, and it's a much fuller, more wonderful way to live. Yeah. And I said control, but control is an absolute illusion. The only one in control is God. When I think about your year long journey and that you're looking for these aspects of love that first Corinthians 13 talks about, you even put yourself in situations that are extremely unfamiliar, which now raises a stress level and a fear level. And so now you've got to love well and not in your own element or familiar surroundings. What was the biggest revelation that you received from God? There were so many, there were, I'll tell you the one that was the hardest for me mm. or that I dreaded was love doesn't keep a record of wrongs because we might forgive, but we don't forget. You don't forget the things that happened to you. Right. Yeah. And so that month I had gotten a phone call, a man from the U.S., a pastor that wanted to go to Haiti and see a water project that I was working on and asked if I would meet him and take his group. So I said, sure, of course. So eight guys from the United States came over, mostly pastors. And then I brought two Haitian friends who were both men with us who had been working on the water project and to translate and, and work with us. And we drove out into the countryside where we're going to work. And when we got there, we got there. There's a very small building that we're going to stay in. And it just has two rooms. And each room has four twin-size beds in it. And there's a little extra room. We brought a couple cots. We brought an air mattress. I'm thinking we can squeeze people in. You know, we can all sleep inside. It's hot in Haiti. The only thing you do in Haiti in your bedroom is sleep. You're not going in there to play cards or anything else. So you can be in tighter quarters. So uh, the head guy pulled me aside and he said, Kim, did you see the rooms? And I'm like, well, buddy, there's nothing else to see. It's a small place. But then I thought, oh, he's going to think I want my own room. So I'll just say, I'll sleep outside. And, and then he'll say, no, if anyone should sleep inside, it should be you. And then I'll say, well, I don't care if there's other people in my room. And he'll go, great, because there's only so much space. So I said, well, it's okay. I'll sleep outside. And he said, oh, good, good. Because there are men on this trip that would not feel comfortable with a woman in their room. I'm thinking, what happens in the room at night with a group of people that I don't know about? I wear pajamas to bed. I sleep. You know, what, what happens in the night? What could possibly happen? But, with a room full of people. Right, with a room full of people. But I did say I'd sleep outside, so I had to figure it out. So I saw this piece of plywood, and it was held up by a couple of wooden structures. And I thought, well, if I sleep under that, at least if it rains, I'm covered. And we did bring an air mattress. So the 
First night went to bed. I was so afraid because there are tarantulas, there are snakes, there are scorpions, scorpions, there are chupacabras, who knows what's lurking in the bushes, right? So I was so nervous that something was going to dismember me, something, whatever. Right. So went to bed the first night, the air mattress held air for about an hour. Then I was sleeping on gravel and it was so loud. Dogs were barking and horns were honking. And finally that died down midnight, 1 a.m. or so. And then about 2 a.m., the voodoo drum started in the distance. And then that went on for a couple hours. And then finally I was able to get some sleep. So first night came and went, everything was just fine. Second night, same thing. Within an hour, I'm sleeping on gravel, the horns, the dogs, the voodoo drums. Finally, I'm able to go to sleep. But I woke up because there was something on my leg. And I'm thinking, oh my word, does Haiti have the anti-venom to whatever it is that is about to bite me? Can they airlift me to Miami in time? What is this about? What am I going to find? And so I slowly lifted my scared to death head and slowly opened my eyes. And it was a chicken. There was a dang chicken on my leg. And I didn't know whether to be mad because it woke me up out of my little bit of sleep or happy that it wasn't something worse. Right. So I shooed it away. Third night came and went. Everything was fine. Fourth night. Again, I'm sleeping on gravel and it's loud and the voodoo drums and finally asleep. And again, I woke up because there was something on my leg. And again, I was so afraid. And I slowly lifted my head and slowly opened my eyes. And again, it was the chicken. It was that dang chicken again. And again, I didn't know whether to be mad or happy. I didn't know how to react. But the good news is that night we had chicken for dinner. <laughs> so the next night, the fifth night came and went and it was just fine. And I'll tell you what, though, Sherry, at first I was angry. I was kind of bitter. I was like, who do these guys think they are? I am all about equality, but I am a woman and I'm a human being. And you're treating me as less than a human being by making me sleep outside. Like, what is this? And you guys are pastors. I was bitter. I was angry. And then God said, Kim, love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. And then I realized what it is. So yeah, I'll never forget that time. I mean, it was intense. I'll never forget it. But the narrative changed, the tone of the story changed. And instead of these rotten guys who made me do this, who did this to me, now it's just this funny thing that happened. And I could literally sleep anywhere in the world and be perfectly fine. So the tone of the story changes. Again, it kind of comes back to your reactions, right? How you, how you react to things, how you deal with things. But bitterness only hurts us. And so often, whoever you're angry at, whoever you're bitter toward, they don't even know. It's not hurting them. Meanwhile, you got to take Rolaids and uh, some aspirin or whatever. It's giving you a headache or you feel so bad about it. Well, love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. The, it's something that happened. You change the tone, just change the narrative. And that's how you go on. That's how love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. But that's such a, well, I can't say typical I, to think when you said the fifth night and I'm thinking nobody even still has offered to come out and sleep on there one night and give you a bunk. But I guess it was the whole issue of a, a female in the room with men. So it sounds like they never even 
gave it a second thought of like, oh, she's outside sleeping on the ground with tarantulas, even from the perspective of being a woman and having to think about tarantulas and scorpions and snakes. And, um, but I wonder if the Lord sent the chicken in order to eat scorpions or, or, you know, just the rustling around or the movement of the, of the chicken keeps snakes away and things like that. So (laughs) that could be, but then it sounds like y'all ate him on the fifth night. So that's not cool. I know. Yeah. Maybe that wasn't so cool. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding. It just sounds like the Lord provided dinner after Uh the chicken kept all the critters away. He was then dinner. That's right. God is good that way. (laughs) He is good. He, his, his purposes go far beyond what we imagine or can think of. Well, let me just back up a little bit because I do want to say the spirit of offense, I think is one of Satan's greatest tools against us. And then we get stuck in that and we become bitter and then bitterness and then resentment. Those are hard things to come back from. They're hard. They're hard pills to swallow after they get a certain size. And yet it sounds like you were pretty quick. I mean, five days, that's quick. Me, I'm like two weeks later, I'm still fussing. The Lord's like, child, please. (laughs) listen to what I'm saying. It's an interesting thing. There's no doubt about it. Uh, But why use the head space? Why use the heart space? Right? I mean, everything comes and goes, you know, the Bible says it came to pass. I love that. And it came to pass. Nothing is with us for everything ever. The good times, the bad times, whatever it is, it came to pass. And then there's a new day and a new moment because everything comes to pass. Do you find that you forgive quickly now that you let things slide off your back more so? Oh, for sure. For sure. I don't know that, that it's even forgiving quickly. It's reacting different, thinking different, uh, letting my heart feel things differently. Mm. Not getting to a point to get offended, I guess, is kind of a nice thing to do, but of course it's going to happen. You know, we all live in this world and we're all human And I had a situation recently with one of my sons because I have found that when my kids have turned to adults that each one of them has no problem telling me how I screwed up, what I did wrong. As a mama, they're they're very good at it. It's one of their core values, one of their skills. They're excellent at it, just excellent. And I have one son right now who's been telling me how I screwed up. And it's so hard to not be completely offended, but I try to own everything because it's his perspective. It's how he saw things happening, even though I saw it completely different. And I'll tell you, that's when I really, really, really miss my husband because he's not here to say, oh, come on, that's not how it happened. Like, that's not even the way, whatever you're looking at it differently, but it's how he saw it. And so, you know, I have to tell myself, I own it. I need to. I need to realize that it's his perspective. It's how how he lived that moment and love him through it and not let it get inside of me because I saw it a whole different way. When you're saying that, I can relate to that. One of my sons uh, will tell me the different things I'm doing wrong and why I shouldn't do them. But, uh, and I very much do try to listen to what he has to say and comply with his way of doing things with regard to his children, that kind of thing. You do come to a more, more clarity, mm-hmm. a, a better understanding of what, what's really happening from a parent uh, viewpoint. Now, like you, I'm a widow as well, but I did not have the burden of having young children at, at home. That's a whole nother dynamic and trying to raise children by yourself. And you said you had five. 
they were young adults when my husband passed away. Okay, and now we're in their 20s. I agree. I, but you know, it's funny because I got together for several years with a group of women that all lost their husbands right about the same time. And they all had kids at home. I was the only one who didn't. And I said that at dinner one night, I said, you know, I can't imagine being in your shoes. Like at least I am, it's just me that I have to take care of. And, and you've got the kids. And they all said, we were thinking the opposite, that how sad for you, you live alone. Nobody's there for you. We have our kids and the kids keep us busy and remind us of our husband every day. And they, they thought that we were the ones really? that had it worse because we didn't have the kids at home. I just remember that first year was so difficult. Like, where's my brain? I don't know. And to be able to have to give something to your children that is meaningful and purposeful, I just, I did not imagine I would have anything like that had I had young children to be responsible for, but maybe it does force you to put your mind on something else and engage a, a different perspective. So I didn't think about that. That's a good point. How can people show in practical ways, the love that God is talking about in first Corinthians? Cause to me, it's agape love. Are we even capable of agape love to the extent that we live it out on a daily basis? I think we're absolutely capable of living it out, walking it, talking it. You know, love, again, God is love. So it's, it's who you are. It's not an emotion that comes and goes, fear, excitement. It is, it is always there and it's universal. It's for everyone, everywhere. And it is your being. It is, it is who you are. And so when you are love, when you're walking in love and being love to people, there's no room at all for judgment, condemnation. There's no room for anything like that. So you can just love. Again, going back to the freedom of just loving. Because when you just love, you let the other stuff go. And that's the stuff that gets us in trouble, right? That's, that's the stuff that you, that you wonder, can I really love that way? Because I don't like what that person's doing. I don't agree with what that person's doing. But when you let that go and realize that's not on you, all you have to do is love them, then yes, absolutely, you can walk in that agape love. It sounds like there's some inner healing that's going to have to happen in order for you to get to that place. Would you agree with that? Or do you think it's more of something that you've connected with God over and it is that repentance where you turn direction? No, I think that you had it. You had it right the first time. I mean, I think there, maybe maybe not for everybody, but I think there is this change that kind of needs to happen because you have to become unprogrammed because we don't know these things about love. We don't. We haven't been taught these things about love, and so we've been programmed a certain way, thinking a certain way, and then it's new information. So yeah, I mean, it's some deprogramming. I think for sure. Earlier, you mentioned that you've learned some things about love that you haven't heard talked about. Can you share a few of those with us? Yes. Well, uh, there's no number on love. There's no number on love. When people go to marriage counseling or they're in a marriage, it's 50-50. No, it's 100-100. There's no number to love. There's no number to love. Love is not a transaction. 
you love because you love, because that's what love does, period. There's no strings attached, nothing else. You don't love to get love back. That's a transaction. That's a, I'm going to give you some money. You give me a pair of jeans. That's a transaction. Love is not a transaction. And love has no ego. Love has no ego. And because you love, you know you're not perfect. You know that there's stuff in your life. You know that, that you don't know everything. That other people might know something that you don't know. <laughs> you allow that because you love. And so you're not wrapped up in what other people are doing or what's going on in their lives. You might be there to support people, of course, or you might need to walk away. You might not like them, but you can still love them because sometimes love would walk away. Because sometimes that's the right thing to do. That's what love would do. I think speaking truth and love is difficult or at least I'm constantly asking God, you're going to have to change my tone. You're going to have to change my body posture. Help me to speak truth and love. What does that mean to you when you hear that? I think everybody has their own truth. And not everybody has the same truth. And so speaking truth and love, I think first you got to step back and go, is there any gray area here? Is there any way that this could be taken differently? Are there people in the world that believe different than this? Is the church down the street agreeing with me? You know, think, think about why, why are you speaking the truth in love? Why do you need to say the words? What's important? And if you weigh it and look at it and think about it, you're going to calm down, right? You're going to breathe and relax. So it's going to come from a different place. When you come to a conclusion of, no, I, I do, I need to say this. I need to say this to them. And I feel like God really wants me to say this and say it in love. But a lot of things that are said in love are not necessarily actually said in love. I mean, I'm challenged in that way, but I do feel like truth can be very uncomfortable. It's not a warm and fuzzy thing a lot of times, but it's love nonetheless, and so when you said, sometimes you have to say goodbye to people, sometimes that wisdom dictates that that's the, the decision you need to make and the action you need to take, but it doesn't feel warm and fuzzy and therefore not love yet. It is mm -hmm. so that made me just think of that. How do we speak? Maybe uh, I guess the first point is God's truth, not our truth, but God's truth in love. And so that's a good distinction to start, start with there. When I think about the first Corinthians, it's the first three chapters where it talks about the ability to speak in the tongues of men or angels and having the gifts of prophecy and where you can fathom all the mysteries and have all this knowledge. You can have faith to move mountains. You can give all you possess to the poor and you can give your body over to suffering. But if we don't have love, that four letter word, that little teeny word, then we have nothing. It is all for naught. And so I think about the gravity of this little word holding up the power of that statement. Are you able to break that down any? Do you have any thoughts about that? Any personal perspective on that? Yeah, I do. The biggest thing in life are relationships, right? 
it's all about people and it's all about the relationships that we have. Amen. And you, there's two things you, you need to have love for other people, but you also need to have love for yourself. And it's awful hard to love other people when you don't love yourself. And I think of it like, uh, you know, God, we're made in God's image, right? Mm. So he made you to be you. If God was to make an apple pie and he peeled all the apples, he grew the tree that the apples grew on. He picked the apples from the tree and he made the soil that the tree grew up in and watered it. And he peeled the apples and made this fabulous, incredible apple pie and then gave it to you. And you said, oh my word, this is the worst apple pie I've ever had. To me, that's the same as saying, gosh, I'm not worthy of love. What, who am I? What am I? What's wrong with me? There are way too many things wrong with me. It's because God thinks you're perfect. God thinks you're pretty darn wonderful. And so it's like saying, God, you're wrong about this, but he's not wrong. You are wonderful. You got to love yourself, love who God created, and then you can love others. I think that's a very big challenge for us because we do believe that there's a payment for what we do. We gauge uh, sin. We, what do you want to say on scales of yours is worse than mine. Mine is worse than yours that kind of thing. So I think the biggest challenge for us as believers, well, I don't know about biggest challenge, but certainly a big challenge for us as believers is to actually believe that God wants to honor us, wants to enjoy us, wants to give us his delight. And so I think that when we can step out of the self-condemnation, that internal dialogue, we're, we're agreeing to more of what God has for us, more of who he says he is, more of who he says we are. And sometimes that's just plain hard. So, or at least when you get trapped in old cycles or Satan never misses an opportunity to bring up the past or to dig at you with something. So to engage God's heart about things like that and to step into his delight, it's one of those precious slivers of gold here on this side of heaven. I think anyway, I agree. I love, I love how you said that. It's so true. Thank you. A couple of more questions and then we're going to wrap up here. You know, I read your bio on your Kim sorrel.com page. And I was exhausted. <laughs> you should be 150 years old based on all the things that you've done and put your oh, hand to or experience. <laughs> when I read that, I was like, Oh my gosh, I gotta take a break. Hold on. <laughs> so where are you at in your personal cancer journey? I'm great. I'm doing great. They did find uh, bladder cancer when I had my complete hysterectomy. And, uh, that's, slow growing, nothing much to deal with. I have a bladder biopsy once a year and I'm, I'm fine. They take out anything they need to take out, but I'm doing great. You know, I'll tell you one of the greatest things that came out of that, cause you've got to make good things come out. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It, you can't just wallow in the bad. Like if you, we all have to go through crap Yeah. and we can go through it and then just stay in it, or we can go through it and use it for good. Yeah. So we might as well use it for good. So my youngest son was in doing his undergrad at the time he had been in the Navy. And then thank you, by the way, you paid for his college career, which I appreciate very much because he used the GI bill to yeah. go to school oh, okay, the GI and bill. he was going to be a doctor. That's what he was going to do. Not sure what kind, not sure what he wanted to do, but then I was diagnosed with cancer. And then my husband was diagnosed with cancer 
and he decided he needed to become a researcher. Cool. So he has a PhD as a cancer researcher, and uh, he has made some strides. Like he has figured some things out. Nice. Because to be- get your PhD, you have to figure out something that's never been discovered before. Wow. And it's got to be big enough, valid enough that it is, it's printed in, in a, a notable medical journal. Like you, you can't, it can't just be some little thing. Right. So it takes a long time to figure yeah. out something that's never been discovered, but all those never been discovered things add up and play on each other and help each other out. And so that's things incredible. Are happening. Hey, things are happening in the midst of battling your own cancer. And now you've experienced what I would consider equivalent to a head on crash, because then you lose your husband. What are some of the things that you brought to God? Did you need him to explain himself or give you some point of reference on how you can understand what has is happening? Or did you process this by going on this year long journey? Well, it's interesting because when I received my diagnosis, people would say, Oh my gosh, why you, you do this, you do that, you give, you help you, whatever. And I'd say, well, why not me? Why would I be immune? You know, kind of going back to what you said about, about God and, and, and accepting his love for us, accepting the wonderful things, bringing some heaven here on earth. We, I don't believe that God, I believe God's doing all those wonderful things. I don't believe God's up there going, ah, you stole a pack of gum from the store two years from now, you're getting cancer, right? Yeah. And so it crosses all geographic places that anybody can get cancer. I mean, you don't know. I mean, it, it can happen to whoever, whenever, and you get a diagnosis with what they know now. There's not a lot of pre-knowing of anything like that. And so why not me? Why wouldn't it happen to me? And then my husband, when he was diagnosed, my husband was that guy who got up at five o'clock in the morning and was on his face before God, Mm. reading the Bible, reading um, a, a devotional book and was a prayerful man and lived it lived, lived his talk and his walk were the same thing. And he chased God his whole life. So I was 47 and he was 51. And I just could never begrudge him. Heaven, from what I understand, is a pretty awesome place. And to be 51 years old and not ever have pain again, not ever have to pay a bill, Again, that's not so bad. That's not so bad. And he did it right. He lived right. Like he lived that life that when he got there, it's well done, my good and faithful servant. And so I never have been at a place where it's like, oh, Lord, why did you do this to me? Uh, I just have never been. I've talked to both people one side, they say, look at all, look how good he was, Lord. He did this, he did that, 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 and you still took him. And then like you have also heard it said, he, he lived a good life and, you know, God is very gracious and very kind. So I've seen both, both sides of the coin there. As we wrap up, have I not asked you about something, anything about your book, about your ministry, 
that you want to make sure that people hear about today before we close? Well, the only thing I'd say is that uh, I did your homework for you. And I, it has been overwhelming, I have to say. God is good all the time. God is good. And people are buying the book. Once it sold more than 40 copies or so, I thought, wow, strangers are buying my book. Wow, that's pretty cool. But it is selling. It's going really great. And I get emails from couples who were on the verge of splitting up. I've had a couple of those emails. I've gotten emails from uh, people that are doing it in their small group. They're reading a chapter a month. Um, I know of a few families that bought it for all their adult children. And they're all over the place. And so they do a Zoom meeting once a month. They read one chapter a month and then get together and talk about it. And, uh, and even in the corporate world, I know a guy who bought it for his staff and they have a staff meeting once a month. He brings in lunch and they talk about that. And he said, it's changing the climate of his office. Like that's things are cool. changing. And so I, you know, that's my passion is to let as many people as possible know that there's more to love than, than what we know. Well, I got to get me a book for sure. So parting question, when you think about love, this tiny little word that means absolutely everything in God's value system. And the fact that you, you said, and I believe that God is love. What is one thing the listener can take away today? If they remember nothing else about what we've talked about. That God loves you always, no matter what, 24 seven, God loves you and you should love you too. Cam, it's been an absolute pleasure digging around in this topic and discovering the beauty of God's love, the power of it, the way that it's transformed your life. And it sounds like your book is transforming others' lives. And I'm going to find that out for myself because I'll be getting me a copy. But again, thank you so much for being here today. I so appreciate you. Yeah, well, I really appreciate you. And thank you. You are so brave and strong. Thank you for your time and for sharing this experience with my guest. I hope you have found encouragement for today and a deeper revelation of God's heart in the midst of pain and suffering. We'd love to have you as a subscriber to Finding God in Our Pain so that you can be connected with all my guests as they share their personal experiences and professional knowledge about pain and suffering. And because this podcast is a division of the website, A Life of Thrive, for more information and the various ways you can connect with us, please visit the website, alifeofthrive.com. I look forward to sharing more transparent stories from the hearts of women who intimately know what it means to have their world flipped upside down, their authentic struggle to make sense of it, and what recovery and healing looks like. Till then, sweet woman, remember you are not alone and that God speaks the most beautiful things in the dark.